right, guys, we're rolling. Welcome to another episode of the Unconventional Author Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Oglaw. Joining me today is, so, um, this is a good buddy of mine. I met him at a writing meetup, and um, I think when you pursue this venture of writing, you need two types of people in your life. You need people that are going to say stuff like, oh, wow, that's so cool that you've decided to do be an author yeah go get it oh what if it becomes this big thing i have so much like people telling you like positive things and being proud of you and being really interested in what you're writing and you also need people that are firmly grounded in reality and kind of sell you or sorry they kind of tell you hey look this is um this is the reality of becoming an author this is the reality of trying to publish something and get it out there and these are actual facts and statistics so I'd like to think that um, Peter uh, is one of those people that keeps me really firmly grounded in reality. So, uh, Peter, um, how's uh, COVID been treating you? Well, um, I'm, uh, I'm I'm trying to treat it like a very long space voyage, except I don't get to set foot on Mars at the end of it. Um, I'm coping. Um, Got to keep the you know stay to a schedule. You know. Uh, you know, and don't lose touch with reality. My my collection of singing potatoes is a great comfort to me. Oh, oh, that was a oh, haha, ha, that was a joke. Yeah, um, I remember talking to you like a couple of weeks ago, and you had said um that your life wasn't really different after like all these lockdown procedures were in place. See, I yeah. think you and me are like that, where like when the government's like, okay, we got a lockdown, and everyone has to stay home, and we can't like be going out and we just got to like entertain ourselves at home. There's part of me that says, so just keep doing what I've been doing. Okay. See for me, what would suck is if there was a disease that was going around the world that said, okay, to fight this disease, we all have to group up and be in large groups. And we, that the disease doesn't like noise. So it has to be in a really loud environment. And, and, we can't have deep conversations because the disease attacks the um, parts of our brain that were responsible for cognitive reasoning. We have to have meaningless small talk to keep the disease. Yeah. At the, for me, that disease would be like, well, that sounds like a terrible idea. I, I think at that point, I would just opt for death at that point. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, when, the, when all this started, I was, uh, I was working from home and I was working and, uh, but, and, you know, and I live by myself. So in that regard, it's not that different. But, uh, you know, I do miss seeing people more often. I do miss, like, you know, concerts and part and uh, regular parties and things. And I think even the most introverted and, and uh, of us, you know, do meet a certain amount of human contact. It's... Uh, you know, I think that it's it's I don't think prolonged isolation is good for most people. And I think that the that we're seeing a definite impact in terms of social isolation, in terms of of uh, on people. I think I've, I've heard don't quote me on this. I've heard that like drug and alcohol abuse is way up um, other problems. So I think that, that uh, yeah, I mean, like, I thought my life didn't change that much, but, you know, knowing that I could, that at least I've got a, like a concert or a, 
or uh, some other public event in the future, knowing that that's not going to happen for a while and there's no chance of it. That's that is uh, that's definitely a, a hard a hard thing to handle. Oh yeah, I mean, if you're somebody that needs to be around people and you can't, like I, I definitely feel for you. I feel sorry for you. It's just I was sort of given my uh, take on how it's affecting me. Yeah, um, obviously I like being by myself, but after a while, it's kind of like, hey, I kind of miss this. I kind of miss. Yes. There is exactly. That. But what about what about people that like just go and live in the woods by themselves? I mean, it does happen. Like, are you saying? That yeah. Uh, well, sometimes, and sometimes, you know, they start making bombs out of wood and sending them to university professors like Ted Kaczynski. Um, no, it's like um, there, I'm sure there are people who live lives of isolation by choice, and that's fine. I just think that for most people, I think they're uh, the distinct minority. I think most people need a certain amount of human contact, and I think it's, we're, we're seeing signs of that stress throughout society right now yeah yeah for sure um yeah it's uh it's uh it's it's interesting that i launched a podcast uh it, it's i should call this the covid author or something yeah podcast because i'm pretty much going to be interviewing all my guests uh via zoom uh i should say this right now to everyone who's listening um all you know just my mom and my dad ha 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 um, so Peter has a book out called, I'm going to just check it out right now on my computer. Uh, it's a lover's pinch, a cultural history of S and or sadomasochism. And if you were to see this guy on the streets on public, you would never <laughs> guess, never guess that he's in an S. So like, you just wouldn't. Well, think what does so. an SM person into SM look like? In your um, I, I don't, I don't know. I just, I just want to tell everyone out there. It's a, uh, it's always the quiet ones, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, you know what? I don't know. Like, I guess there isn't a lot because, you know, I think my dad's the same way. He's done uh, fetish photography, but if you look, oh. like, if you just if you're just yeah, but if you're just to see him on um the streets, you'd be like, well, he's a classy, dapper dude. He's got an interesting, uh, suave mustache. Like, you would never. You would never be like this guy's in the SNM, but then again, you would never suspect that I'm writing uh, the type of material that I'm writing. If you look at yeah. me, so I, um, I try not to have preconceptions about people, and you know, I've seen, like I said, I've been in the kink world for a long time, and you know, there's there's people who are uh, punk, or I've met people who are very punk or goth, and and you know, they dress like that all the time, and there's people who you know, dress very, very vanilla because they've got uh, office jobs or whatever. And, and, and um, you know, I don't, so I try not to jump to conclusions about, about what people are into based on how they look at any given moment. Yeah, for sure. Um, I should also say this, that, um, you know, like all these people that I'm planning on having, I have a lot of respect for them. I respect their opinion and appreciation and, uh, You've um you did a fair amount of article writing for a bunch of magazines yeah. or uh, newspapers in the past. I I've, yeah, I haven't done that for a while. I really think that the, especially after the the two thousand eight crash, I think that the 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 market for um, newspaper and magazine writing 
has shrunk a lot. I think that it's a lot of it. I, I, this is basically my own preconception. So I might be, I don't have to like study the industry, but I really think that the, it's harder to get freelance work. Um, like a lot of uh, just basic print publications have shut down because they can't get the ad revenues anymore. Um, and a lot of places that do have sort of taken over for them, like even local news websites, uh, they don't pay their contributors at all, or they have their, you know, contingents of in-house contributors. So it's a lot, I think it's become a lot harder to, to, to make uh, any money as a freelancer these days. Um, even the, uh, the content mills where they basically pay you to make these spam to, to chase uh, uh, keywords um, and SEO. I think even they've, uh, I understand even they've suffered because of changes in the Google algorithm the gate the so i think that that it's a lot harder to find a way to uh to make money that way i mean um there's other things i haven't really tried like apparently if you find a good niche in the in the the erotic industry you can find you can make some money through uh kindle publishing for example um but uh yeah, so I'll be honest. My my writing output, at least in my paid terms, has been has gone way down. I'm both I, nowadays I post most of my effort into writing my next nonfiction book, uh, and uh, updating my blog, which is which is part of my research. So um, yeah, I'm aiming for, I'm trying to you know I'm aiming for you know making writing another nonfiction book, uh, hopefully in a few years. Ooh, what's another nonfiction book going to be about? Uh, this is going to be called The Celluloid Dungeon, and it's going to be about uh, S&M in uh, mainstream media like movies and films and movies, films, TV, and video games. And it's sort of about how SM looks from is looked at from the outside, how movies like 50 shades of gray like secretary discuss sm and and what it says about it so i'm hoping that'll be my uh, my next work i don't know if i'm gonna uh self-publish uh go through the conventional publishing system um that's you know way down right now i'm just doing research and watching a lot of movies some of them very bad some of them pretty good uh but that's my that's what I'm putting a lot of my um, nonfiction writing into. I'm also working on a science fiction novel um, as well, though that's uh, it's been a while since I've had any fiction published either. Oh, so what's your uh, science fiction novel about? And what was like so you've you've had fiction published before? Was it just yes. like short stories, or was it like um, more of a full length novel? Um, I've had a I've had a bunch of short stories published, mostly in sort of the erotica uh, field, um, um, and uh, some of them, uh, a lot of them were the, through a company called Circlet Press, who was kind of a forerunner of that particular field of science fiction and fantasy erotica, starting in the early '90s. And uh, they, so I published a few stories through them, and I got the idea to um, go with sort of the this is when steampunk was really popular. And 
I wrote a book, I uh, wrote a collection of short stories of Victorian slash steampunk erotica uh, called uh, The Innocence Progress and Other Stories. That was published by Circlet in 2010 as an ebook. So that was probably the closest I've, I've yet come to publishing a novel. Um, I've had various short stories published th since then, science fiction, fantasy, erotica, horror. Um, but again, that's something I have not been putting a lot of effort into lately. Um, I still like, you know, and it's it's uh, still, I've, I've got sort of, I don't like to like narrowly pigeonhole myself into one thing. I, I mean, like, I'm, I'm glad I published The Innocence Progress, but I don't think I want to write any more steampunk erotica. Yeah, hey, uh, do what you do what you feel like, do what you want to do. Don't just limit yourself to one thing. Ah, so the reason I had mentioned the uh, I'm just telling this for everyone out there. Uh, the reason I mentioned those articles is um, because if I didn't like if I didn't know you and I just saw like I was just reading a newspaper and I saw these articles, right? Like I would yeah to think like okay, I don't know how I'm going to say this, but. Um, I would say to myself, like, oh, this is a respectable guy. He's respectable. <laughs> He's not going to give me the time of day, whatever, right? Because, I mean, like, um, I've been told to be an intelligent person, but um, I also goof around a lot and joke around, and maybe I don't do it in the most appropriate of circumstances. But, um, hey, I'm glad I was wrong. So, um, um, hey, here's a topic I can talk to you about. So, you you said with your um future publishing endeavors you didn't know if you're going to go self-publishing versus traditional publishing but um uh talking to you more privately you had mentioned that you were going to go see i've heard a bunch of different things about self-publishing versus traditional publishers that traditional publishers aren't giving good advances and they're not really investing too much in promoting and marketing the novels that are going that they're publishing and that even if they you publish it you kind of got to do most of the work yourself so um what would be a reason that a new author such as myself would want to go with a, a traditional publishing group okay well let me tell you i'll give you the my experience as an anecdote and you can you can build on that so um I published uh, a Lover's, Lover's Pinch, my nonfiction book, um, through a, uh, the conventional publishing route. I got an agent, I got, you know, and that took a, a fair amount of work, uh, including one case where I thought I'd, I had one, an agent interested, but they were, uh, when I, but the, the moment I asked them for any changes to the uh, author's agreement, uh, for representation, they immediately dropped me and they wouldn't budge on anything. Then I uh, got another agent who managed to connect me with, put me through to a publisher. Um, now, the so the the publishing process was not in and of itself. So I, I didn't have any problems with there. They, they seemed pretty happy with the way I made it. They, you know, did the usual stuff, the proofreading, um, I still had to do some work like getting permissions for images and things like that. Um, I also had to pay for uh, the pay an additional fee for the index. They don't they don't do that. You have to pay for the index. 
but obviously that's not a problem from fiction books. Now the index is so. Now I got like a, if I remember correctly, my advance was I believe fifteen hundred American. And um, so, to my knowledge, it's this was published in twenty eighteen. To my not, I don't believe it has yet earned through its advance. Now there are a couple of things that I the decisions they made that that the publisher made that in hindsight I really think were bad things were the wrong decisions that hurt the book's commercial prospects. They wanted to go after the academic market, so they made it a hardcover, uh, which retails for a lot more than a trade paperback, and I think that that pushed it that made it less appealing to casual readers who weren't academics. And I think that, that cost a, a certain amount of, of appeal. Um, the other problem is, the other big problem I had was I think the way it was marketed that it keeps ending up in the um, health and wellness section of bookstores. And that might not be something that the that the publisher itself could really do much about. That might be more of a problem of the um, of the the retailers like like Chapters Indigo or or Barnes and Noble or what have you, putting the book in um, section in the, you know, okay, it's about SM, okay, it's about sex, therefore it goes in the sex section of health and wellness. And um, but the problem is, is that it's not really about that. It's it's prime. It's a work of history of historical research, and I believe that it has a much bigger would have a much potential greater potentially greater appeal to people who are interested in history than people who are interested in sex and like improving their relationships and stuff like that. And you know that's fine. It's just not what my book does. Um, so I think that it's so yeah so it's if it should be in the history section instead it's in health and wellness so and I realized I went in knowing that I was writing this kind of this this um, uh, white elephant of a book that was about sort of this rather peculiar topic in an unconventional way and people might might not know what to do with it so. Like my my core audience, if you like, if you have a Venn diagram of like overlapping circles and you have people into history and people into SM, like my core audience is the relatively narrow sliver of those two circles overlapping. And I figure that if that it would be better to try to expand into the history circle than into the sexuality circle. Um, so what I found is that a in terms of promotion, in terms of that I've actually, I think, done better. I've put a lot of work into promoting my own work uh, through my website, uh, historyofbdsm.com. Um, I've, uh, you know, I've done signings. I've uh, appeared on numerous uh, SM podcasts. I'm hoping I can get onto like a history review book review podcast, although that hasn't come through yet. Um, you know, I've written to a lot of places trying to get them interested. Uh, and you know, I've been at I've been sell, you know, I had an agreement with my, the publisher that I could get by them uh, buy hard copies at a discount and sell them myself. and I've you know got a 
Square account and things like that. So I've been working, I think I've done a substantial portion of my sales total is uh, just me in person selling it to people at kink events. Uh, maybe not all of it, but a substantial portion of it is me is basically me doing my own work. So if you think, just don't, if you don't think that if you're going to go the, the mainstream publishing route, go right ahead. I mean, you can try it. It's just that um, I think that, you know, you might and you, but I think that the people who get like, you know, the major marketing pushes, they're the exception, not the rule. A lot of times I think you're going to just sort of, your book is sort of going to be thrown out there and hopes it'll find an audience. And in my opinion, that I've done the bulk of the labor in terms of getting it out to interested people. Um, so that's why I'm, so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, uh, you know, and I, I haven't like actually crunched the numbers on total sales, uh, but I'm starting to think that, you know, if I had, you know, gone the self-publishing route, um, I might have more money now. I might have maybe not a huge amount more, but some more. Um, I might have uh, been able to at least get it in retailers in in a in a in a place where the a better audience will, it would find a bigger audience. Um, and I think I might have you know being able to retain control over the project and not have all these decisions made that in hindsight, I really wish I had spoken up about. A lot of this was like me thinking, okay, they know what they're doing. They're the publishers. And I don't think they really did know what to do with my book. I mean, they, they accepted it, but I don't think they pushed for it to be in the history section instead of the wellness section. So um, that's, that's the hard lesson I've learned. I mean, it might mean that if I finish, you know, in my next publishing ventures, I might go the mainstream route. And, you know, uh, having learned the hard way to, you know, be able to push back on decisions like how it's supposed to be marketed and how it's supposed to be packaged. But um, I'm also considering that, you know, self-publishing is definitely an option I'm considering. It might, depending on, on other factors. You're going to do a lot of work either way. Oh, but come on. If you enjoy doing it, does it really work? Ha, 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 ha. Um, uh, yeah, well, I, I, I know. I mean, like, yeah, at a certain point, it's like, you know, it, 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 yeah, at a certain point, it becomes a job. But the way I like to think of this is um, if you're going to have to have a job, you know, no matter what you do, you might as well get something out of it that you really enjoy something where at the end of it after you've done all the work you look back and oh man like that's a uh, that's cool it's cool that was cool that i did that i was i feel really yeah. satisfied that i oh i'm I i'm 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 glad i did it and i'm not i'm trying not to you know I, i'm i'm viewing it as a learning experience and i'm definitely gonna take into uh, my next project but i mean i don't thinking it when you said think of it as a job um that's, I mean, I've heard that particular piece of advice about a lot of, from a lot of sources about writing, but I also feel like it's like, you know, if you actually calculate the amount of time that you put into a writing a book, 
versus the amount of money you actually get, it's it's way, way, way below minimum wage. So um, I don't necessarily think of it as, like when you say job, I think of it as something that you do for at least a reasonable, at least some fraction of, fraction of living expenses. Um, I have no, you know, belief that this is going to be like, you know, I almost view this more as a calling as, a, as like, you know, something that I think is, is, is important to say to the world. And um, so that's why I don't feel, I don't feel I was cheated of any significant amount of money, maybe, you know, a few hundred bucks here and there by, but um, that's, to me, that's almost irrelevant. Um, that's, I'd much rather, I'd much rather that Innocence Progress found, I, I, I really wish that they had sold it at a lower price point. And I think that that would have, and I'd much, I'd rather it reached a larger audience than even if it, it, it ended up with, with me making less, less royalties off of it. Um, yeah, I'm looking at the price of it right now, and it seems a bit much for yeah. a book. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it, I mean, it seems a little pricey. That's true. They wanted to go after the the academic market, which is kind of a captive audience. So that's why I think that if they'd knocked it down to if they'd sold it as a in in a trade paperback format, um, I think that would have made um, I think that would have been a better call overall. Well, do you think part of dealing with the publishers you need to have some almost have some business sense and how to exactly yeah and, well also like learn how to sort of talk to them and say things in a polite way like like yes yeah. tell the idea of hey guys maybe if we put this under um history as opposed to health and wellness and do as you say uh, sell it as a paperback it could uh do better because it'd be a little lower price and i think people would be yeah. more interested and attracted to it um yeah, yeah uh, dealing with traditional publishers is interesting because I've heard that I don't know if I maybe I misheard this, but they said you, in order to get it out there, you've got to be a little aggressive about it. But also, you don't want to like I have apprehensions about it because I don't want to piss people off and then they just stop dealing with me. Like because it yeah. sounds like you had an agent that you tried to negotiate with and they were just stubborn and just said no, we're going to drop you. So uh, you know, that was the first agent and I, I, I thought I had was going to sign with, but I, I, I when they did that to me, I, I, I dropped them and I never looked back. So um, yeah, I think yeah, I, I think that I, I my problem was that I kind of went into with this sort of very gratitude position. It's like, oh, you've deigned to, to, to you know get grant attention to my my little work and and I almost feel like, you know, that that's not a good, at, that it is a negotiation. And, and I, I think that I needed to be willing to, I really, in hindsight, I really wish I had pushed a little harder for certain things. And, and that required the attitude of not being in awe of the publisher, not feeling like, you know, not not feeling intimidated and and super grateful. It's more like this is a transaction. I have something you need. You have something I need, and I'm gonna get the best deal I can. So it's it's doing and, business. That's what you should have yeah. gone in with, as opposed to the attitude of, 
Oh, mighty publisher, I am but a humble author at your disposal. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's and that's one of the things that I think self-publishing does is that it gives it gives the it gives the writer the independent writer um, an option, and they say if the if the deal doesn't work, well, I you know I I'm weighing all the pluses and minuses, and if I have to, and uh, if I can't quite find a deal that's satisfactory, I can I can go you know go through self publishing through Amazon Kindle or what have you, and and uh, you know there's different pluses and minuses, but I might decide that's a better deal for me. Yeah, so everyone needs to realize that self-publishing versus traditional publishing. There's pros yep. and cons to each. Um, I'm at the point where I think about both of them. I'm probably just going to go the traditional publishing route. Um, I mean, you always have the option to pull out and just do self-publishing in the future. Yeah. Um, from what I've seen out there online, I mean, there are people that do self-publishing and it works. Um, I was at Creative Inc. last March, and there was an author there that I had met who said he's going to do self-publishing for his next novel because he wasn't happy with um, these returns from the traditional publishing. And he seemed like a guy that was making, he, he was making a living off of it. He was making it happen. So uh, it's just stuff I think of in the back of my head. And it goes back to um, this idea I stated at the beginning of there's people that you need that kind of grounds you firmly in reality. And you've definitely done that with them. Um, what you've just said about your experiences for sure so uh yeah it's always something to think about yeah yeah and and um i think about it is that like we're in a very peculiar like i don't know if you've spent any time on uh, archive of our own or uh fanfiction.net or something like that but you know i'm i'm astonished that people will post like 300,000 word epics um, of fan fiction. And I'm just, I'm, I'm amazed at the sheer amount of work that they're doing to put that out for, uh, for no monetary work. So I think it's like you're there, you could define sort of a, a trade-off between, you know, you're trading off things. You're trading off like total creative freedom to versus uh, credibility versus financial reward. And those those things, there's different variables there. And I think that if like, so, you know, people, you know, there's still a certain stigma attached to self-publishing. Um, and in the case of like a nonfiction book that I'm hoping would be taken, would be uh, picked up in some academic circles. And actually it has been part of a, a, a course, uh, one of the readings for a course, which is great, um, is that, but it's like, uh, I'm, I'm still trading off, I'm still, you know, juggling those, those competing demands. And so I got to just like, you know, I, we're, if I wanted to, I could have just like not even gone through Kindle, just, uh, you know, converted it into a PDF and, and literally given it away for free on my website. And um, that might or may not have been the best call, but at least it's an option and it might have reached more people and it would reach at least some people. This at least gets taken, goes through the, the circuits 
of uh, the channels of of the mainstream traditional publishing industry and gets and gets reviewed by um you know has been reviewed by you know academic magazines and and things like that so that's um yeah i think there is like yeah the the, the it goes back to the the author thinking realizing that they've got leverage that they don't have to you know they don't have to be the the abased supplicant before the almighty public almighty publishing house and um especially these days when there's like we're down to like what five publishing houses worldwide well you got and, the uh the mate the, aren't they the five big publishing houses and you have a bunch of minor publishing well there's yeah there's minor ones but they like those five I, i'm pretty sure they hold control most of the of the publishing industry and you know they've got a zillion little imprints and things but it's like it's it's creepily monopolistic in my opinion um so yeah you're 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 dealing i think that yeah i think i believe you said earlier that business sense is necessary and i think you're that is uh that bears repeating the that you know if you want to you you have there's a tool that you can that getting a book into the conventional publishing path is an option but it's not the only one yeah well um what i was thinking like okay so when i said the business sense what i had in my mind was in the wolf of wall street when he's like talking to that swiss banker like that kind of just just popped in my head for some reason like that scene of um yeah that's what i was thinking of um so like i mean how aggressive because it almost seems like it's a no one to hold them no one to fold them mentality like like how aggressive should you be because you know like for me personally i don't want to accidentally like oh this is such a slippery slope for me man but um, I don't want to accidentally say something, piss them off, and then go, oh, hey, that could have worked out had I not, like, fucked up. So, like, what, what, are, yeah. You, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Like, what do, what do you think? I, uh, that's, that's a weak point for me as well. Um, no, you know, worried that I'm going to overstep and get and get chucked out. I think there's, you know, knowing how to, it's a negotiation skill and knowing how to, you know, push a little harder for, um, like, you know, when you're, it's the same for, you know, when you're getting a job and you're negotiating stuff like, like salary, like, um, you know, and, you know, back when freelancing was, was at work, I would, you know, sometimes I would, uh, you know, it, it took a little, you, you, I, somebody once said that the best thing you can ask is like when somebody mentions money and it's like you, the phrase to use is that seems a little low and, you know, you try to learn that, you know, try to use that as a prelude to like, you know, bumping it up a few percentage or something. And, um, yeah, I think that is an, that you know some people are have the 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 nerve, for lack of a better word, to like be in that situation and be willing to push a little harder and not be intimidated. And not everybody has that, though. I think I think a lot of people can learn it. Um, so, like I said, you know, like I said, like next time if and when I go in for another negotiating 
another uh, publisher negotiation, I'm definitely going to uh, push a little harder on the way I think it should go and not just uh, just take everything that uh, the publisher says. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, hmm. All right. Uh, I don't know much what more we can say about the publishing traditional. Okay. Yeah. Um. I, maybe. Maybe my, tell us about your science fiction novel that you got going on. What's that going to involve? Okay. Uh, it's called Edge of the Map. Okay. And it's uh, set in the near future, uh, mostly around uh, a future version of Vancouver, um, after there's been a major earthquake and global warming. So the seas have risen, uh, portions of Vancouver are, are drowned. Um, some of the, like the, the Lions Gate and the Burrard Bridges collapsed in the earthquake. So um, now, uh, are, are you, there's, and it's a lot of it sort of thinking about like lots of different trends and ideas that I'm thinking about, you know, trying to imagine, you know, trying to imagine the world say 40 years from now is always difficult, but it's something we science fiction writers keep doing. And well, um, I think 40 years isn't as hard as say like 400 years or a thousand. Yeah, that's years. actually, yeah, it's actually easier to imagine in some ways 400, but we keep trying. So um, the, tr the main trend I was thinking about was sort of the idea of the nation state crumbling and the nation state is really only about as we would understand it today is really only about um 200 300 years old and it's kind of a historical anomaly that we've had that and i'm and what i'm trying to see is what would supplant it and what that would look like sort of at the ground level um like there's this, there's, um, I don't know if you ever listened to uh, the uh, historic, no, um, Hardcore History podcast. podcast. There, there are so many podcasts. Out yeah, there. I know. Um, no, I, I haven't, I should probably listen to more author podcasts yeah, since right. I have and, one, but um, yeah, yeah, Hardcore but, History. Yeah, he talks about, you know, he, he, he has, this, he, it was about history, but one of the things he talked about was like, did, we, we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire, but what would that actually look like to the people involved in it? And, you know, and he talks about how, you know, we talk about the, the but like in, on the scale of like individual human life, the fall of the Roman Empire was so gradual that, you know, you might have no idea anything was wrong, anything, any big historical trend. Like you might be some colonial, some provincial official um, who thinks that, who's complaining that you can't get the, the wine you like from the other side of the empire. And that's a minor annoyance to you, but that's a symptom of the larger of the of the empire itself slowly slowly crumbling over centuries um so 
and I was trying to think about like applying that today and what it looks like in our in our own world. And this was I actually started this, you know, before uh, uh, the Trump situation in America, before uh, all the stuff where we've got all these, you know, these these paramilitary groups running around. We've got like, you know, armed groups. There was a plot like people literally armed groups literally planning to kidnap governors and and in total defiance of of the standard authority and um and you know there's a saying that one of the definitions of the nation state is that it's a area in which the a central authority has a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence and I got to say that if you look at America the last few years, it's starting to look very uh, unmonopolized. There's a lot of like, um, you know, semi, you know, illegitimate groups, non-government sanctioned groups that are walking around, you know, looking paramilitary, but they're not sanctioned by the government, by the central state. And to me, that's a symptomatic of of a society in trouble. And I think that that's what we're, so what what I'm looking at in my book is um, we're sort of at that uh, the protagonist is a weapons inspector who like regulates the weapons that people are allowed to have in certain areas. And so he's living in this world where lots of, there's are, there are sort of like zones where different rules and different laws apply. And sometimes like he starts out, he's in a, uh, like he's trying to find this this little village in Bolivia that's declared itself independent from the Bolivian government. And, you know, he can't uh, do his job because they won't comply with the state authority. Um, and then he, you know, he, he tracks down, like uh, he finds a friend who's living in this squatter community and what's left of uh, the Stanley Park Aquarium. Uh, after the big earthquake, and they're basically this little squatter commune that's, uh, you know, kind of has rule of the park and unofficially uh, basically does what, you know, treats themselves as their own little sovereign state, even though they're like, a, you know, a five minute walk from downtown Vancouver. And that's, and they're saying is that, you know, we want our own autonomy, our own independence, but it also means that you know, if you withdraw completely from the state, like that also means you've got, are you allowed to have weapons there? And if you don't have weapons or or are you really independent? Um, questions like that. And uh, so and it's, I'm interested in like, you know, because sometimes these communities, sometimes they're the very poor, they're people who can't go anywhere else. And sometimes there are people who are so ridiculously rich that they can buy a little, you know, private island, if perhaps literally, and basically do whatever the hell they want there. So like Jeffrey Epstein, who had this like little private island compound where he was bringing underage girls to do stuff I'm not going to discuss here, is he was, you know, running his own little in a, what amounted to his own little private fiefdom where he could do as he pleased, uh, regardless of whatever the laws that he technically had to live under was. Um, it's like a lot of it's based on Christiania, 
um, which is this little neighborhood in Copenhagen, um, that, right in the middle of Copenhagen, which was sort of took, taken over by um, basically hippies in the, I think it was the 60s. And they basically run it as their own like little independent village uh, inside the middle of Copenhagen. And, uh, you know, they, they have their own laws and they, uh, I don't know what, and they, I think they like take care of their own water and energy and stuff like that. Um, so if we can, if you can, like, what happens when, you know, central authority becomes more decentralized, if like you can, uh, you know, if the, the, if like you can live out in the woods and have the same energy and the same water and the same, uh, internet connection, um, that anywhere else, do you, do you need a city? And I think we're seeing like that under COVID because so many people are working from home now. So the whole point of having like, uh, an office in, uh, you know, a downtown high rise, is that is that necessary anymore? Is that still a status symbol, or is it actually is it actually useful, or is it just a status symbol? And is that status symbol still valuable? And well, if nobody, um, uh, I, I, the whole thing about working remotely, and this is just my opinion on it, is I used to work in the video game industry briefly, and we had moments in which we all had to work from home just because we had no office space at one point. Like it was this guy who was trying to start up the company, right? And so yeah. there are problems with working from home. And a lot of it is, how do you know people are actually working? Like I yeah. uh, I would just dad, dash away from my computer and do other stuff and then come back. Like in retrospect, it was really unprofessional. But the point is, is we found there were problems with that too right but having like people in an actual physical space where you can just walk around and look at them like you can get a better sense that they're working i mean obviously if you're working from home and stuff's not getting done and you're the guy to do it yeah it's really um like obviously you're the one in trouble um but i found it pretty interesting some of the ideas you're saying about the nation state dissolving because um uh, i was looking up my own so i should just tell everyone that in my novel when society collapses, there's an event that kind of just undoes everything once and for good. And it was an event I wanted to incorporate. It's pretty interesting to me. But there's a long, slow decline leading up to that. And so yeah. what part of that looks like is, is that, and I read this somewhere, I was just looking up what does decline look like? What is, or I was looking up like a post-apocalypse. I can't remember what it's looking up, but I read an article about city states may be the future and uh i remember playing this game called deus ex which one of the characters in it mentions city states and he says it's government on a level that people can understand uh, mm -hmm. so what i'm trying to say peter is you're stealing my ideas you son of a bitch <laughs> um yeah um i think what it is is that the reason this happens is because even though we create these systems and organizations in place we still have this very basic tribal fundamental level we operate on and that's just people we know it's like groups of less than 100 people and it's areas that we could walk to and sort of see within our immediate vicinity so i think yeah. every now and again things just dissolve 
and they revert to that. Um, I want to see what you think of this. So there's three movies out there I saw that kind of, to me, they are the stages of collapse. So the first was Logan. Now I know it's X-Men and it's mutants, but um, with Logan, what it is, is it's society's still here, but the cracks are starting to show. So you see how things are kind of rough. And then he's in that one area where there's like the gang and you really don't feel like there's any authority there. And then yes, there's, and then he has the automated um, trucks. So there's that. And then the second stage is, did you ever see ready player one? Yes, I did. So that's another stage where life's looking really bleak and people are still trying to hold it together because they have these modular houses and, maybe technology has also advanced to the point that they can just escape from it because stuff's so bad. I read or I listened to the book on Audible. So it goes into a lot more detail about the nature of the world and how he had to take a bus ride from, man, I can't remember. He had to take a bus ride to Columbus, Ohio, but I think he was going from like someplace in the South and it took two days just because the road conditions weren't that great. Yeah. That stage. And the next stage is Blade Runner, which is, um, I know I've made a huge jump, but in the beginning, I'm particularly thinking of Blade Runner 2049, where the next stage is ecosystems have collapsed. I mean, it's raining all the fucking time in Los Angeles, and Los Angeles is a pretty sunny place, so when the hell does it rain that much? And you have other areas that are just lawless. There's like the San Diego dumping grounds, which is just nothing. So, but like there is still like some organization and a society as we think of it so um i like to think of in my novel like those three stages are part of that long collapse so uh you also thought of some idea i think he also mentioned that book about the romans collapsing and that's what intrigued me is i wanted to do the long slow decline not like the sudden everything's fine and then shit just hits the fan and it's like everything's just gone to crap um so uh great minds think alike (laughs) yeah yeah there's a there's a term i've heard called uh have you heard the term uh hollow state hollow state yeah okay uh, hollow h-o-l-l-o-w yeah yeah what's uh can you go into detail about that the idea is is that the the you have a, a state that claims a territory but all of its sort of attention is focused on the borders and the the center. And in between those, the border and the center, you've got a huge area that's basically ignored. And that's where the infrastructure crumbles. That's where, so they're, they're super focused on maintaining the border from outside forces. And like the, the elites are living in the center um, the urbanized centers, you know, in, in relative stability and luxury. But, you know, the it's the uh, in the, the area in between is where the problems are, and that's where the infrastructure is is crumbling. That's where, um, you know, the highways are breaking down, the water systems are breaking down. You know, like Flint, Michigan, writ large, and you get an idea of, you know, just how of like what happens when there's like large portions of, of the country that's better, they're basically just abandoned. That's what I think. And that's kind of what I fear the future is, is that um, 
the that you know automation will lead to a large portion of the population that is of simply no use at all. Um, and like the the in my book, I call it in uh, I call them they call them as a sort of as as a as a like an insult that they've taken on themselves as a as a badge of pride. They call themselves the flesh. And like, you know, as opposed to the machine, and they just say, you know, we're the flesh, we are the abandoned, and we have to, you know, protect ourselves and look after each other because the machine will not. Um, and that's what I, that's kind of my nightmare scenario of, of people who are, you know, people who are, are not, of people who like whole portions of the population simply being abandoned. Yeah, um, when you mentioned, uh, so sorry, that the flesh, that's in your novel that you have planned? Yeah. Yeah, um, when you mentioned Flint, Michigan, like, again, like, again, to this idea of collapse, um, people talk about areas like that, and they talk about these parts of economic decline, and they talk about restoring what once was, and uh, somebody i think my dad jokingly put a map on facebook of make mongolia great again it talks about how mongolia used to have this large empire and it doesn't and so you obviously think that's you know it's ridiculous the mongol empire is not going to come back but you also get a sense of when they talk about going back to the way things were you get a sense of you can't really do that you can't go nope. you yeah can't that's the past you can only go no, forward that's, that's no, that's the problem with make America great again, because like, even if it was great for you, because, you know, you're a white guy and, and, but that might've been great for you then, but it wasn't, you know, it was, even if you could go back there, it wasn't great for other people. It wasn't great. So great for, um, you know, for women, for non-white people, et cetera. Oh yeah. And golden. That golden 1950s, oh, yeah. 1960s so, time was, I mean, yeah. it, it, to me, it seems very much an illusion because it's on the surface, yeah. it seems great, but it's not great for everyone. Yeah. And also the stuff that was good because you had like a lot of, you had, you know, high union membership, you had, you had a lot of tax, you know, the, you had very high taxes on the wealthiest people, um, stuff like that. They, you know, People are saying make America great again. They don't want that back. They don't want, you know, they want their free markets. They don't want like a high marginal tax rate. Um, so, yeah, so it's like, I don't, I don't think we could, that's why I'm very, uh, I'm very suspicious of anybody who basically says, who, who, there's certain people who view the, the world as like, the, the world has fallen. They have this idea that at some certain point, the world was good, and then some huge mistake was made, and everything went to hell after that. And I don't think that's, I think that's a very disturbed, a better, that's a very disturbing, I think that's a misleading way of thinking about it. Um, and I think that, that, that you have to think, yeah, you can't look backwards like that. You can't, you know, don't, well, people so, tend and to. I mean, it's like, and it's, and by, I mean, I, I realize how, how scary it is to imagine a future. Like I'm, I'm fight when I'm writing my book, I'm fighting the temptation to go sort of full dystopia. Um, 
you know, never go full dystopia. Well, actually, you can go full dystopia, but you don't have to. I think it's really, it's a little too easy to make a world that is just utterly awful uh, in every way. And uh, to try to then, and rather than try to come up with a, a more nuanced way of thinking about what the year, the world might be like in the future and a more nuanced view of it. And uh, yeah, so I think that's in a, so yeah, beware of beware of nostalgia. I don't think anything good comes from nostalgia. Well, people tend to view the past through rose-colored glasses. Oh yeah. I mean, almost like I think from a personal example, it's almost like people are starting to view the 1990s almost yeah. through rose-colored glasses. I saw something on the internet. It was it was about the year 1990 and all these films that came out. There was like Home Alone and. Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country, but uh, I mean, as somebody who lived through the 90s, you know what I've noticed? Basically, if you look at human history, we've always been sort of a hot mess of conflict. But people tend to just yeah. look back as if it was like, fine, because they're only remembering the good parts. I think it's because it's in the past, and so it's not something that can affect you right now. So it's danger yeah. level or severity of being bad, whatever. Um, it's just, it doesn't exist. Yep. I mean, I think one that's... thing, okay, I want to see what you think of this. So one thing I was thinking about is like, people are watching the show Vikings and like, oh, being a Viking, oh, it's so cool, right? And I even yeah. have someone with Facebook that kind of glorifies like the Viking um, way of life and what they do and their honor and how they're willing to die for their friends, which sure, dying for your friends is fine. But, um, you got to keep in mind they, they the stuff they did they just invaded and pillaged people like who'd had yeah. nothing who hadn't aggressed them i mean it's something you glorify in the past but let's be honest if something like that was to happen nowadays it would be a considered a serious human rights violation there would be oh, like yeah. hollywood celebrities raising charities for it there'd be these deeply gritty political films about it it wouldn't be something that you, you glorify. It makes me wonder if, like, 500 years from now, people are going to do that with like terrorist organizations like the Taliban and Boko Haram and the Lord's Resistance Army. They're going to just like maybe people. Yeah, people. There's people who love that. That you know, the warrior. You know, the noble warrior myth. They love that stuff. And and there's always somebody willing to romanticize it. Um, you know, and I think that that's. You know, we 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 romanticize pirates who are probably kind of thuggish and probably thugs in a lot of ways. And, and well, yeah, that's, and, that's uh, another thing I was thinking of. Was yeah, yeah. So don't you know, people? Yeah. So I'm I'm very I've got no no I don't have any sort of romanticized view of of the past. I mean, like you know, for one thing, without corrective lenses, I'd be kind of useless. I'd be like, you know, I don't know, dragging a plow around a field or something or something, but not, but I doubt I'd be doing anything that required, you know, eyesight beyond a couple of meters. And like, I kind of like, uh, I'm a big fan of Mad Men, which was very good at, um, the TV show, which was very had a very sort of anti-nostalgic perspective on the '60s, you know, and the they were pretty harsh in like you know, uh, 
exploring the racism and the sexism of the time, like, you know, everybody's smoking like a chimney and drinking like a fish. Um, all sleeping with the with the, the secretaries. You can't get away with that shit nowadays. Not no. And I think, and but I also think it's like it, and it's it it shows just how um, you know how constrained people's lives were, how you know narrow their ideas of what of of identity were the you know the casual you know the the and it and i think it's it's um i think it's good to you know people weren't any maybe made superficial statements of being more genteel but you know behind it was sexism and racism and stuff like that so i don't believe that uh i don't believe that that that's why I find anybody who thinks that we should go, we should adopt the 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 mores of a of an earlier time. That's why I'm very suspicious of that. Well, when it comes to the 1950s, like the only thing I can yeah. really think of is, you know, they had this dapper, dressy way, a classy way of dressing, which I, you know, I, I like. They had the union memberships and they had the high tax rate for people that were super rich. I mean that was great, but all this other yeah. shit like the race. Yeah, and the that's, that's what I mean. Like so much of of nostalgia is it's very superficial. It's like, you know, like when you watch, um, like you know, when you watch Back to the Future, there was like that. There was all that fifties nostalgia in the late seventies and early and eighties, and like it's it's you know they do a lot of put a lot of thought into like the clothing and the cars and all that. But it's like, you know, they don't address the racism or the sexism. Like the the closest thing they think to get to like acknowledging the racism of the era um, is like, you know, the the guy who works in the malt shop, the black guy who works in the malt shop, you know, he he he's mayor in 1985 in the world of Back to the Future. And people sort of scoff at that. But it's like, this is 1955. This is the year Emmett Till was brutally murdered. A 14-year-old boy was brutally murdered because he talked to a white woman. And, you know, that's the that's the brutality underlying all of this, uh, you know, all of this, uh, the, the time that they were living in. That's the kind of life that these people were leading. And I think that, that, you know, so people, you know, if you're, you know, people will look back at, at they'll adopt the clothing of, of the, of the era. They'll adopt, you know, the signifiers of the era, which, okay, great. You know, you want to dress up like whenever, go, you know, have fun, but don't, you know, don't sugarcoat the, the problems. Don't like, you know, we're already seeing this. We're already looking back at like, you know, movies like Ace Ventura, um, which is an incredibly transphobic movie. Like it's, uh, and you know, in a way that would, would thankfully not fly these days. Um, or like, you know, the, like we look back at, at Friends, for example, as, you know, 90s nostalgia. But if you watch it in, in hindsight, it's it's a very homophobic and and film. It's like the, it's, 
it's you know full of every of all the male characters are basically live in perpetual terror that they're of being gay and um that that's a very you know and that's the kind of thing that we that we don't uh that leaves a bad taste you know you want to wear you know 90s fashions have fun you know but uh don't sugarcoat the ugliness of the uglier parts of the of the time and place or the the stories that don't get told they get swept under the rug you know marty mcfly could have met emmett till and seen his his but uh, that would not have been a fun movie well yeah so, i think back to the future wasn't trying to be like deep no it was just meant to be a fun movie um did you ever watch Home Improvement in the 90s? Because that's another what I'm thinking about, where like the roles of men and women were like, yeah, clearly. Like, there's this episode where his son Bradley is putting on makeup just to hide some zits, right? And then he shows his friends, and then his dad Tim sees it, and then he starts like crying because he's like, oh, he's not that much of a man. And uh, like, Jesus, you couldn't do that nowadays. Um, but one of the things that was interesting about that was um there was something in the back of my head that maybe because I'm very logic oriented and just as is there's something in the back of my head that was like something's off here because he's not like jazzing himself up like a drag queen he's just trying to cover up some zits right and Tim's whole yeah. role of like being a man is loving sports and tools and all this and I wasn't really into sport or any of that right and so it's like yeah something in the back of your head says am i supposed to be this way i don't want to be this way and it's just like a cultural it's stuff that nowadays i feel vindicated for because it's like well i wasn't wrong he was however i also want to say that like can't you just let the past like you understand that it was just different they had different standards and we've learned since then as opposed to just banning home improvement because other than that shit, it was a funny decent show i think mm. yeah yeah there's like i think that 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 you know we you know the world changes and we the way we view the past changes and some things that were incredibly popular in their time you know sort of they they we look back in hindsight and they're they don't quite leave a good taste in the mouth and you know we we, you know, uh, like, you know, you used to see, I like, I'm old enough to remember, um, you know, when they did like the, the Tom and Jerry cartoons or, or Warner or the Warner Brothers cartoons. And sometimes you get some like racial humor, like blackface, stuff like that. And, um, you know, and I can, I, in hindsight, I can see why they don't show those. I can see why, you know, um, for example, Song of the South in in from Disney has sort of been like shut up in a vault somewhere and it's the the it's the it's the Disney feature they don't talk about. It's uh because and I don't think anybody's like urging for some, you know, to revive it or or reconsider it or anything like that. It's just you know, we've we've we liked it back then. Actually, I was researching that, and apparently, Song of the South was very controversial even when it came out. 
but it was like, you know, we some things we 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 move forward and some things we abandon as we go. Yeah, well, what I was trying to say is don't just outright ban it, give it some context before you show it. So yeah. Warner Brothers like, had um I somebody posted this on Facebook and Warner Brothers, they put this little disclaimer in front of their cartoons and they it I can't remember exactly what it says, but it's something along the lines of Look, this is what people thought at the time. They are by now considered racist. We are showing it because if we don't, it acts. We act like it never existed in the first yeah. place, which is worse than just acknowledging that it exists. It was something like that, but I like the way it was yeah. phrased. I, I I agree with that. I I think, but I also think there's a difference between like you know, you know, it's like uh like, you know, Gone with the Wind, which a lot of people say are, is, you know, is like, I mean, you know, was an incredibly popular film in its day, made a huge amount of money. Um, and, you know, a lot of people like remember it as like a Hollywood classic. And, you know, they say that we, you know, it still gets shown in theaters. There's like, you know, gets deluxe packages on, on DVD and Blu-ray and stuff like that. And it's like, do we should we do that and like or should we just sort of say because of the the racial politics and the handling of slavery and like should we should we do that or should we just sort of like you know move it out of the spotlight you know we're not going to deny that it existed and if you really wanted to see it you can but we're not going to treat it as like you know the great american you know fun for the whole family kind of thing well, I think, again, you should give people context and say, this is like, there's a, you know, you almost need to train people to be a bit more critical of what yeah. they're watching. And instead of just saying, put it out there, and then it has the influences that they have and it causes damage. In the case of Gone with the Wind, it's like, okay, look, there's a little bit of bias to this people have said that it seems to be glorifying the way of the South and that with the end of the Civil War and the end of slavery, a way of life was starting to decline. Um, there's so many films where, you know, there's a certain perspective of the world that's skewed, and if you're not careful, it can sway you that way. So, I mean, Gone with the Wind isn't the only example by any means. Yeah. So I think I think things some things just like I said, we move forward and as we go, some things we just decide they don't fit anymore. They're not they don't sit well anymore. And, uh, you know, we don't have to do I don't think we have to, like, abolish them. But I do think we have to, you know, we have to sort of, you know, put them in the archives and and. Uh, you know, there's some things that I think only belong in archives, not in like, you know, in major, in the in the spotlight. I, I want to see what you think of this idea. So the way I think of it is, um, there's multiple ways of thinking, right? And each yeah. level of technology, as we get more and more advanced, gives us a different way of thinking. But sometimes we lose a way of thinking. So a simple example is like the difference between using an automatic versus a manual stick shift in a car, right? It just does something different. Yeah. Um, there's certain things you gotta think about. So um, if films or books or whatever represent a different way of thinking, if 
but like for example you had mentioned the turner diaries on um your facebook and how that's a little skewed without context it can give you a, a way of thinking that may not necessarily be safe but it is a way of thinking however for these more dangerous ones you should keep them in an archive but you think of it as the more dangerous ways of thinking you contain like we have a viral vault of like deadly viruses that we can think of so like Ebola and smallpox that we don't want to get out there. But there's samples yeah. of it that are contained in cold storage just for whatever reason, in case we've got to study it. Yeah. Yeah. And there is stuff. And I think that, yeah, so there's a, yeah, that's how things like, you know, when you look at something like the Turner Diaries, which for the, for the listeners is this, horribly racist novel that was um, published about basically a white takeover of America and the subsequent genocide. Um, this is, uh, yeah, it's like, I don't think we need to like burn every copy of it uh, if that was even possible. But I also, but I think is like, you know, needs there, you know, people who research this kind of stuff for, uh, historical purposes for political purposes. Yeah, you do need to keep, uh, you know, it's a question of like where it belongs. Um, I don't think it belongs in like, you know, in, in Barnes and Noble, but I, I, I think we need it in, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's in the, you know, it should be in archives and, you know, it should be academically studied, you know, yeah, like, like, the, like, that's what I mean. The, the, the same yeah. cold storage kind of equivalent of whatever. Yeah. That would be. Yeah, um, I do. I'm also thinking that that. Uh, yeah, so that's I mean, like when I was in university, we we watched the complete triumph of the will, which is a, a Nazi propaganda film uh, by Lenny Reif, directed by Lenny Reifenstahl. And, um, you know, it's like not something you could. Well, back then we had blockbuster video and you couldn't get it in blockbuster video. Um, but it's like something they had access to in the archives at UBC and we could watch, we could, uh, we could see it that way. So, um, yeah. So I think that that's a, that's, um, I think it's a very dangerous, it's, it's a very, to me, it's a very delicate issue that needs to be handled very carefully. I don't think that there is a, there are options we can, there's a difference between, um, you know, total, allowing anything and uh you know having strict censorship i think we can do a lot of you know there are there are validities to hate speech idea of hate speech law so yeah the the i think it is that's what i'd like to see yeah um so like you know like i said with the whole context you watched a Nazi propaganda film in university, but you didn't yeah. become a Nazi. Why? Nope. Because you had context and like you were aware of like the messages that aren't necessarily accurate. Like yeah. that, that's basically why you're allowed to watch that. But like obviously you guys didn't become Nazis like overnight because you know you had yeah. some context to it. Yeah, I've, I've, it's a little, I think it's a little, we, we, it's not like in a case of like open head insert ideology. Um, 
I think it's a little more, it's a little more um, like one of the, one of the commentaries I read on the Turner Diaries, to go back to that example, said that the Turner Diaries, it doesn't really, it doesn't really make a case for white supremacy. It just sort of takes it as a given. It just says, you know, this is that, and, you know, it, it tells what's kind of like a standard, like, adventure, you know, quasi-military adventure story. But, you know, the, 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 it just takes, but the, the ideology of white supremacy that drives it is sort of just taken as a given. It, it provides the motivation for the action adventure. So I think the idea is sort of that if you accept the, the action, the, the story, you, you, you like just say, okay, that must, the, the ideology driving it, uh, you know, that, that's the way in. It doesn't make a case for uh, white supremacy. So I think that there's a more nuanced approach there um, to the way that, uh, you know, ideologies like white supremacy or fascism spread. It's a little more sneaky. Uh, okay, so sorry. Um, you said basically in these films like Triumph of the Whale and the Turner Diaries, well, Turner Diaries is the book, like their case is a little more sneaky. Yeah. You have to be careful about reading it because that's how it gets into you. If, like, you're one of these people like Timothy McVeigh who used the Turner Diaries as a justification for what he did. It, yeah, if you're not aware of it, it can like get in you and cause you. Yeah, I think that if you're if you're if you're primed for it, if you're in a right, you know, there's a bunch of other factors. If you want to, if you want to, I don't think that that you know, the Turner Diaries made Timothy McVeigh do what he did. I no, think it was probably just going to do it regardless because uh, I think so. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, if I remember correctly, he was a he like was don't quote me on this. I believe he was like arrested with pages from the Turner Diaries with him or something. I don't remember the exact details, but I think that he was that the Turner Diaries was a part of a culture that he hooked into that you know uh pushed him you know of white of violence of white supremacy that and that pushed him towards that so i i don't think it was it was like a factor on his behavior but i don't think that if like if the turner diaries had never been published that timothy mcveigh wouldn't have blown up the building um i think it's more like you know you have a culture that you know, I think that's so much of what we're seeing is that they're they're when you look at that they're trying to build this culture, this this self-contained world that of that um, fulfills all these these cultural goals of belonging, and um, like I'm I'm influenced by uh, Slavoj Žižek in a lot of this, uh, who's this um, philosopher. Who, and he talks about what sort of like ideology as a force in and of itself, that like an ideology, all ideologies have to do sort of the same thing to get inside, you know, to get inside people's heads and to get them to subscribe to them. Uh, 
and it's not and what they actually point to is less important so you know the 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 process of being recruited into say you know communism or uh fascism or what have you is kind of the same the package you know the payload the vehicle is the same the payload is different and the payload i and so the vehicle is the ideology whether it's you know the so you know something like that is is a way of so something like the turner diaries which is you know written like an action adventure thriller is not it doesn't like it's uh you know it's the the sugar coating that gets you to you know sort of accept certain signifiers and you know and then you know that's the bait and switch is like you know that it's the the thriller story is the vehicle for the the national the fascist and white supremacist payload so do you think if as a society we could better understand the vehicle and what it looks like sort of regulate the vehicle it would make things but, a little better like well that's that's well yeah but the the thing is the 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 vehicle of ideology is like um again like uh zizek talks about how like like beethoven's ode to joy you know da 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 you you've heard i mean everybody's heard that everybody thinks of that as this really like positive and happy and uplifting music and that music has been used by organizations all over the political spectrum from you know super far left to socialists to uh you know super hard right fascists um and it be and because they all it follows it 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 offers the same thing it offers you know the hope of of uh you know the the promise of like you know a, a future of, of the belonging to a great movement and you know defining the future and redressing a great wrong and um uh, uh, the, 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 a future of plenty and prosperity and uh, a band of brothers and, and uh, stuff like that. And that's the same thing you get promised uh, regardless of, you know, whether, you know, it's of the actual politics behind it. And uh, so I think that that's a, that's, you know the same methods get, and you know and it's the same methods that gets used to um the the you know to go back to the vehicle and the payload the 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 vehicle is the same whether it's carrying a, a you know a car bomb or you know a load of of covid-19 vaccines it's the same kind of truck and the so that's why recognizing the vehicle is is the problem. It's the only, it's like when you have to like learn the way to get around without the vehicle, that's the that is the problem. It's like, 
you know, the other analogy, like he has, he made this, there's this great movie called, I think it's The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Uh, Zizek made it. And uh, he, he uses the scene from uh, They Live, where like, you know, the, this guy gets this, the magic sunglasses that let him see all the propaganda and the alien and aliens that are ruling the world, secretly ruling the world and stuff like that. And he, he puts, and, you know, so he wants, he tries to convince this guy to put on the sunglasses and there's this like five minute brutal fight. Yeah. I, I remember <laughs> South Park yeah, making he, fun of it where he's like, yeah. put on the glasses. Ah, yeah, yeah he, I've seen the movie. Yes, that like they basically it's only when they've actually like beaten each other bloody does he finally put it the you know manage to force the glasses onto the other guy. And that's how how much people will resist um stepping out of their ideologies of a of defy of accepting a worldview outside of their ideologies. And um that you you so that's the and that is a problem and that's like how how we need to that's um and um that's the the thing we have to that's how much people will resist having to get out and walk uh to go back to our analogy and so i think that 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 um yeah so like you 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 think more you know, going back to the turner diaries yeah it's it's horrible but it's like the the it it's uh it it's you know you could find the same elements that you would just find in a regular thriller um like robert heinlein he wrote a book called i think it was called revolt in 2100 which is basically about like overthrowing a, a theocratic fascist government uh in future america and it kind of it's all about like a guy who gets like initiated into a super secret organization and does terrorist stuff and things like that. And, you know, it's not set in the real world and it's not and like the enemy is a, a, a theocratic uh, fascist organization. Um, but it does kind of feel a little too similar for comfort to realize uh you know, the, the, the parallels there, like, you know, the scene at the end of star Wars, a new hope where they get the medals and they have that March, the, the, you know, the, the parade and all that, yeah. that's straight out of triumph of the will that sort of like, you know, the, the, the ceremony of, of our heroes being granted the reward and everybody saluting them, you know, that's straight out of, out of triumph of the will. And, uh, you know, we need to, that's, we need to be careful about, about, uh, you know, it's only like when you get at something like, say, start the Paul Verhoeven movie of Starship Troopers that, you know, it leans so heavily into the, the, the quasi-fascist look that it becomes parody. Well, that, that was wasn't that based off of a Robert Heinlein novel? Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, but I mean, like Paul Verhoeven, he he saw real fascists when he was a kid growing up on, during the war, and I think the only way he could like make a movie adapt that film in good conscience is to make it like this deadpan 
parody and just totally lean into the fascist uh, images. So, yeah, so you can view Starship Troopers as a rip-roaring, you know, let's get the bugs um, kind of story, adventure story. But, you know, you, you see stuff like, you know, the, the, the uniforms and the, the, the sort of like existent, the, the, the conflict being framed as a sort of, you know, battle for the, the ultimate battle for the universe and, and the, the, um, you know, the flogging scene and all that. And you could see that as like, you know, straight out of, you can see that, that the only way is, is that he's, he's basically giving you the, 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 like some people have interpreted, we should interpret Starship Troopers as a propaganda film from within the universe of Starship Troopers and everything that we, so we should take everything with a, a grain of salt to say the least. Yeah, for sure. Whoa, mm -hmm. got political here on the unconventional yeah, well, podcast. Yeah. But it's like, talking um, about books, got into collapse of civilization and ideology and but hey hey that's uh that's not important here uh that, that's a uh, something that's definitely involved uh more often than we'd like to realize <laughs> yeah yeah and i don't i think that as a writer i think writers have an obligation to think about that at least on some level i think yeah so um I don't know, like like a lot of people, like um, so. I, I a lot of people have complained that I over, um, I, I overanalyze things. Maybe you know. Here's the thing: I never understood that. Like, I, I know I kind of understand overthinking it, but I saw somewhere, and I kind of agree. This is kind of the way I am. There's no such thing as overthinking. There's just thinking. Like, there's a certain yeah. point at which you can you can just stop and like like i mean if you don't understand something or something's not fully understood why stop go further who knows what you can introduce to society that no one's ever thought about like there is no overthinking there's just thinking um yeah hey i want to see what you think about this speaking of thinking um so with all these discussions we have with the ideas we convey as an author and a writer and with free speech and I was just thinking about some of the best conversations we used to have with that writers group we used to go to. Um, this is what I've started to think about the expression of ideas. So you don't want to just have complete unobstructed free expression. Like for example, if you're in a crowded movie theater and you yell fire, 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 and people rush yeah. out and they get injured, you know, we, there's legal ramifications yeah. for that. And we all understand why it's because you can, injure people people have a tendency to react to someone yelling and being urgent and saying something that you know puts us in jeopardy so there's regulation but you know you, you can't do that but um also you want to be able to freely discuss an idea like for example what we're doing we don't want to not have this stuff because <gasps> what if somebody listens and arrests us or has, has us arrested for what we're saying so i think you should have free speech and free expression of ideas but i think ideas are powerful ideas can get into people and shape how they think and they can change or break nations and change history so i think 
the expression of ideas, free uh, speech being under that, should be regulated. There should be like some context given to it and something that sort of gives people a frame of mind to it. So um, what are what are you because I posted something about this on Facebook and I think someone said like, oh, if you regulate it, it's like like just how you would regulate, say, meat. You don't just butcher meat and get it out there like you have to go through you know bureaucracy and agencies that check it and say hey this is fine or this isn't fine but i mean you're not you're not banned from just putting meat out there so uh and i think he said that regulating it is it's totalitarian but um as somebody i respect peter uh what are, what are your thoughts on that idea I used to be a very much stronger, more strongly in favor of, uh, of unlimited free speech and freedom of expression. I'm a lot more, I'm a lot more uh, ambivalent now because like, like I've, we've, you know, the last few years we've seen the spread of, uh, of hate speech We've seen the spread of, um, you know, uh, uh, misinformation, political misinformation about uh, uh, scientific misinformation, you know, vaccine deniers and things like that. Um, and I think that that's very, and I, I um, part of that's just like, you know, when, you know, social media, for example, is, is very, is still a fairly new thing. And we're still dealing with like you know the the laws regulating it, you know we're 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 kind of at the mercy of these algorithms that Facebook and things are serving up, that we don't really know, that I'm not sure we re anybody really understands. They're just like there to keep us clicking. Yeah, but and, shouldn't well, people? And this is something I think of when we talk about social media, and it's something I've thought about is shouldn't people first ask themselves what makes a source of information valid or why should i believe this as opposed to they just see something on Facebook. and look i was guilty of this for the longest time so i'm not going to bash people while talking while trying to make myself seem like i'm so much holier than thou but i asked myself okay what makes something valid if i see a link what should make it believable as opposed to just yeah. like just like hearing it hence it's what i wanted yeah well that yeah that the, this is if i'm going to use a 50 cent word here that's epistemology how do we know what we know how do we decide what's true and what isn't and you know we're 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 given we're in this environment right now where you know if you click on something in in you know, watch a face, uh, click a see something in Facebook, or you click on a video in in YouTube. You know, the algorithm wants you to keep you know will keep providing you more of that, and um, and I think that that's that's you know way that uh, especially if people like you know there's this irresist. Some people really want the idea that you know, the truth is hidden, that, you know, there must be some hidden truth that if I could just, 
that if I just get this hot rumor, I know what's really going on. I'll be on the, I'll be in the know. And I think that, that, you know, and I think a lot of, you know, conspiracy theory type stuff or, or, or misinformation type stuff that depends on that urge. Um, the idea that like, uh, if you um, know about it first and you're trying to warn people, you've kind of got a leg up, like you've got an advantage over them. So you get sort of high yeah, from yeah, being on the that, inside, essentially, quote unquote. Yeah. That, and that's, and, and that's a, you know, a difficult, that's a difficult thing to, fu- to face up about where, you know, we're, we're in this, we're, we're, you know, people have a tendency to, we're, we're in this crisis situation this real problem now where institutions like health authorities, like environmental science, there's people who flat out disbelieve them, who, you know, there's, you know, people who deny, who are anti, not just anti-maskers, like some even go so far as to deny COVID exists at all. And, um, you know, and that, that, you know, they're willing to uh, um, you know, those darn algorithms are still serving this kind of stuff up. Um, and I think, and they spread through these informal, these networks, you know, from person to person and they, excuse me, and, you know, we're building the situation where we can't even agree on basic facts about the world. Um, and that, and you can't. Once that happens, you can't have politics. You can't, um, in the usual sense. You what you've got is competing. You've got competing ideologies, but you don't have any agreement on what on what is and isn't real, and what the way institutions and procedures should work. You know, and like you know there's still stubborn people are are they're still questioning the results of the 2000 American elect 2020 American election rather and it's like what are the how do we how do we if people just don't believe the result what can you tell them you know if they believe if they disbelieve the system itself is is not valid you can't you can't communicate with them you can only get them to invest in the in the if they're not invested in that you're you've got no way to communicate with them so i think that it it um i'm almost thinking that maybe to go back to the the our our analogy when we were talking about you know the the payload and the vehicle maybe the problem itself is not so much the payload as it is the vehicle maybe the problem is the algorithm that is you know, favoring towards the more extreme, the more subversive ideas. So the more like the the problem is is so if we maybe it's not so much that if we tweak did something to the the algorithms Facebook and YouTube use, that might actually um, slow it down at least, or if not stop it. So yeah. the, that would. Did you watch the social dilemma on Facebook or not Facebook, but uh, on Netflix? No, I haven't seen that. Okay, well, because it's talking about a lot of the stuff you're talking about, right? And I remember watching it and like I wasn't, I didn't use Facebook too heavily, but after watching that, I was glad I didn't. And so it talks about the algorithm, but I said to myself, 
I'm just going to start fucking with the algorithm. I just hide stuff constantly just so that it leaves me alone. Um, okay, so yeah, but would, just so sorry, what were you saying before I stepped yeah. in? So, so it's kind of like, um, you know, it's like, um, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, like gambling. The lonely, you know, there's certain you know, in regulated gambling, like, you know, slot machines, for example, are, you know, have to operate within certain, within certain parameters, because they, you know, slot machines, for example, they exploit that whole intermittent reward thing, that if you, you know, you, the rattle push that, that damn lever, even if it only sometimes gets a peanut, and you can use that to, um, so you have to, you know, there's regulations about how many slot machines there are and where they can be set up and and things like that. So, um, you know, and I think that we, we've, we've already, you know, we've got a name for it already. We've got doom scrolling where people will just, you know, keep scrolling away. And it can be this very maladaptive, addictive behavior. Um, so I think that, that maybe it, that's more of what we need is is uh, it's not so much the content but the the mechanism that it's delivered. So maybe we need to, um, you know, adjust the algorithm within within the recommendation algorithm, and um, like you know, like I said, this is a new medium, new be a new media always come up always have problems about you know the the way the content is you know new forms of content spring up to take advantage of it and people have problems you know there's always controversies over the wrong kind of content people communicating in the wrong way um that that the but i also think but all a lot of it can actually be traced back to the 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 technology itself the the um the way it's distributed and the way it, it communicates with people and who can make it and who can't and so i think that that um yeah so i i'm very interested in the ideas that you know that facebook for example should be treated as a monopoly and broken up by antitrust regulation i think that might be uh the best for everybody the best option well, they were talking like that congress had some meetings with like Facebook and yeah. Facebook was just basically like what's best for Facebook isn't necessarily best for the planet. Like, Jesus, well, I guess we know your priorities like Mr. Zuckerberg. Yeah, well, that's um, that's what every regular that's what every I think every industry will say that what's good for our industry is what's good for America or whatever. And uh yeah, so but I think that's that's I mean I'm that's my take I think that that's what's necessary to consider that's a what we should consider um, you know the same thing happens with you know and it's like we we're so dependent on these algorithms that give us recommendations whether it's on Amazon on on YouTube on Facebook on Twitter uh, that's what we that you know and they're they're, I think they're an incredibly influential thing that we don't really understand and, you know, need to be, I think, regulated more. 
yeah like everything you're talking about they hit at in the social dilemma like how AT&T has access to people's information just because they need it for you know whatever reason but there's regulations on how they use it they can't just take and sell it and do whatever and the social media is um pretty uh it's just unregulated you're talking to all these people that used to work for like these major companies like facebook and instagram and some of the founders of like maybe whatsapp and Flickr and i can't remember what else they say but they talk about like you know like essentially they've created this beast that's just sort of become a little unwieldy like it's no longer really payment yep and it also talks about how you you watch the terminator yeah about technology robots and ai taking over but they say in a sense that's already here it because before it overcomes human strength it's overcoming human weakness and when i heard that all i thought to myself was yeah yeah that is the problem yeah it's not like it's not gonna be you know that's one of my something i'm afraid of is like it's not like you know more more the matrix than the terminator that we accept this you know false world that is decided out of our view um because for because it's comfortable rather than um you know rather than you know a a mechanical skeleton shoving it up and and crushing your head yeah but um would you say social media is the vehicle that you were talking about and that we have to sort of control the vehicle because of like what it's conveying or am i getting that confused with something else okay well okay let me see if i can um i'm yeah i this might not be the best of of uh this might not be the best of metaphors for this but i think of it as like we said you know we have yeah so we've got these recommendation mechanisms and it'll if you want it'll if you want you know videos of cats in bathtubs it'll give you videos in, of cats in bathtubs and and he, oh here would you like another here have you seen this video of a cat in a bathtub yet and um you know if you happen to click on something about you know vaccine denial anti-vaccination you know you're suddenly your recommendation stream on YouTube is full of anti-vax stuff. And, you know, and that's just the, the, the algorithm doing what it's supposed to, what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to keep you invested and, and it's preying on, you know, like, like feelings. It's, you know, the, the cats in the bathtub is playing on your, ah, feeling. And the anti-vax, um, you know, image is playing on your. There's something wrong in the world, and I need to, you know, that some great secret is being kept from me, and I need to know what it is. And and that's uh, that's a different feeling that they're preying on. And you so um, maybe I guess people kind of decided that the 
you know, the, the cute feeling is less valuable than the paranoid, than the paranoid feeling. Well, I think they're both valid. They just appeal to something different. Sometimes you want to watch cat videos. Sometimes you want to inform yourself about the world so uh, that you're making better decisions. And in the case of the conspiracy theory stuff, for some people, that's just them being better informed. Well, I, I don't, I think there's a difference here in that it preys on like, you know, the there's, I think, you know, you study conspiracy theory thinking, conspiratorial thinking, like, um, you know, the, uh, there's a great essay called, uh, Richard Hofstadter called The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And uh, he talks about, I think he wrote it in the 50s. And he talks about how there's this, you know, you see patterns of, of in conspiratorial thinking. And if it's, you know, there that they prey on certain, I think, certain psychologies, certain psychological tendencies. And they don't then that, you know, just reading that uh, that's a different impulse than, you know, actually educating yourself about history and about politics, you know, because then you're, there's always the temptation to fall into the paranoid mindset to believe that there's some malicious uh, elite, you know, out to out to get you, out to the, you know, off doing some horribly depraved things in the dark in some dark locale, and all this, this like, you know, you, you've heard of QAnon, right? Yeah, yeah, I know QAnon. Yeah. Okay. The whole that whole bit about like the that there's a they got, the Democrats are a secret cabal of uh, cannibal, pedo- cannibal pedophiles doing, you know, unspeakable things in the basements of pizza restaurants and stuff like that are, uh, that's, you know, that's straight out of anti-Catholic propaganda in the 1830s. People were convinced, you know, people were eager to believe that all those Protestants in America were eager to believe that the Catholic immigrants uh, we're doing utterly depraved things in convents with nuns and uh, killing babies and whatnot. And you know, you just change the change the markers a bit. You know, give it a slight redress, and that's QAnon. That's the whole. That's PizzaGate. That's QAnon. That's the blood libel against the Jews. It's it's the same stuff. It's the same mentality, just with different signifiers. Okay, so so sorry. Why were people willing to believe that stuff about Catholics in the 1830s? Because they were different. Because they were other. Because they were strange. Because they were secretive. Because they needed enemies. Because they were paranoid. And paranoid is in a, is in and of itself a self reinforcing philosophy or psychology or ideology okay so basically they believed all this stuff because people are tribal they have a natural fear of that which they deem the other and um what else were they gonna say you mentioned something about like everything i just said but also 
there are these external internal instincts where they just want to like be afraid and with the fear goes all these other facts or not yeah. facts but like information that's just not true yeah i mean it's it's like like one of the things i've heard about conspiratorial thinking is that it makes the world uh comprehensible instead of this idea that there's chaos at least there's this there's the there's a relatively comforting belief that that my fear and anxiety can be blamed on a specific even if you know on a specific group of people somewhere and the that you know that's that's what's really creepy about about you know you get further into QAnon and they start talking about the storm and there's this there's this belief there's going to be some kind of revolt against this these elites and Donald Trump is going to lead that and there's going to be like the you know that the, it provides this this grand narrative that you know that the world will be redeemed into a new world of justice and you know that's what you know that that's that's what they're offering is the idea that instead of this you know chaotic world where nobody's in charge where there's these all these problems that don't seem to have that are amorphous and changing and don't have easy solutions especially on the individual level there's at least the sense of that you know it's hard to comprehend that the idea that we have enemies that there's somebody you know sitting in a dark room you know you know doing horrible depraved things and plotting evil that makes we can we that makes is sense to us in a way amorphous problems don't well it sounds to me like in many respects a lot of these conspiracy theories and people that believe in, the logic or not really logic but it seems to be revolved around how it makes you feel and in that case it's very similar to just religion what are your thoughts on that um well that that's i mean like i think that religion can be a part of conspiratorial thinking so that you know that you have that you know again the you know protestants were very willing to believe the worst of of even absurd lies about catholics uh and you know cat christians have always been willing to believe the worst about jews um you know I, i'd say it's more of a mode of thought a mode of thinking about the world rather than inherent to religion or inherent to any specific religion it's it's a mode of thought rather than well, well what i was just saying is that it seems to be sort of along the same lines i have a lot in common with that because hey so my first introduction to conspiracy theories really was in 2012 when i had made this movie and i used people to help me make it and the, one of the people that was on it near the end you know he pretty much like confessed to me that he was like not, not saying explicitly but it was obvious he was a conspiracy theorist guy and so everything he says sounds believable i'm not willing to pass something up just because i don't like hearing it so at the time it was like well i guess this is true i really don't have anything else to deny it but as time went on i said to myself well hold on something's not adding up here there's something that seems to be faulty with the logic 
And it seemed that the evidence they claim that this stuff exists sounds very similar to when people that are religious fanatics claim that they have evidence that God is real. And then you look at the evidence, it's like, well, this isn't really evidence. So it's all about how it makes you feel rather than whether or not it's like factual. Yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think it has less to do with actual claims that about than it is about like, you know, if you, if they're believing in, um, you know, if, if, like if people come up to you and say everything, you know, this is what you've been taught is a lie. This is the truth. To me, that's, that's when my defenses go up. That's when I start thinking, okay. Um, and that's when you should always be, be very skeptical. It's that promise of like, you know, I'm going to give you the real dope on what's going on here. And, you know, you, that's why I think like, like, like when there's sort of this tragic element to this because like I remember you know you you remember in the Matrix you know they get the whole there's the whole red pill blue pill scene you know Neo's talking to Morpheus and you know what if I told you et cetera et cetera and you know and that's you know the the Wachowskis they're you know they're the uh, they're trans women they're very you know left oriented people and. One of the great tragedies of the past 20 years is that that the the red pill itself has been appropriated the, into you know uh, for one thing that's like you know this very very sexist ideology this very misogynistic ideology but I think so many other you know conspiratorial right wing uh, uh, f- fascist or racist stuff. They they use that metaphor. They use that sense of you know they'll use you know even explicitly they say red pill blue pill or whatever. So that the the story of the the Matrix's story of initiation of like being inducted into this new group that's of being like given the truth and given and inducted into this new true new organization this new group to become part of this grand struggle for the future um was has been used uh by so many people and you know that doesn't stop them from using the red pill blue pill thing even if it's even if it's for causes that would be extreme that the wachowskis would never uh would be utterly opposed to um so i think that that's that's it's the same approach just again we're back to this to the vehicle versus the payload um the payload is in and so often is you know um you know all those memes where Morpheus gets you know recruited into. So everybody's saying is that like you know you're in the Matrix, and if you listen to me, I'll get you out of the Matrix. And the Matrix is is vaccines, or democracy, or or racial free or racial equality, or feminism, or whatever. And you know so just follow me, and I'll I'll give you free. I I offer you freedom and truth and uh that's a very potent formula that's a very potent vehicle to get to to 
move a payload into somebody. Uh, yeah. Uh, how, are we've been talking for like over two hours. How, two how hours. Yeah, I yeah, I didn't think I'd go on this long. It's a good uh good second episode. I thought it was, thought it was just gonna be an hour, but uh, you know, it's up. It's it's uh, how long do you want to keep doing this? Um, it depends on how much more you want to talk about. I do have a scene I kind of want to finish off today. So uh... if if like you know, I, I'm uh, to be honest, I think we're we're kind of way off topic from writing, and uh, um, so you know, and I'm also getting a little tired and a little hungry, so. Okay. Uh, hey, um, if you're tired and you're hungry and you uh, want to go, we can uh, yeah, it's doing yeah. uh, we can definitely go here. It's um, tell everyone, tell all three or two of my listeners where they can get your books or book. Uh, okay, well, uh, the art of um, a lover's pinch, uh, you can get through the uh, usual retailers. Um, you can go to uh my uh website historyofbdsm.com and uh, that'll there'll be uh sales links right there that can uh, give me a small cut of the profits or it can direct you to uh, other retailers if you don't want to support amazon uh it's uh let's see my other work um yeah the um innocence progress my steampunk erotica that's uh, also available on uh, Kindle and a few other ebook sites. Um, yeah, so that's my main approach. I'm trying to keep going on. Uh, I'm still publishing stuff on historyofbdsm.com. Um, and I'm working uh, on my celluloid dungeon project next. So. Cool. And uh, I'm trying to, I'm on a, uh, you know, working on Twitter, working on uh, Pinterest. Uh, I was I was working on Tumblr till they censored everything. So, but uh, yeah, there's I lost over two thousand followers on Tumblr, which was a pain. Well, Speaking a, of censorship, followers on social media. Yeah, but it's like that's so that's my uh, so yeah and uh, yep. Yeah. And uh, that's my, what I'm working on these days. Cool. All right, Peter. It's been nice talking to you. It's been a blast. It's been so much fun. Everyone, that's yeah. been Peter Tupper. I'm Nathan Ogloff. And this has been the Unconventional Author Podcast. See you guys on the next episode.